if you're sitting there looking at this environment and you're looking at policy uncertainty, looking at demand uncertainty, you know, and the policy being China's COVID as well as fiscal policy, which in, which is a really big deal in Europe right now, and is having a big outsized impact on the market and certainly the political future of, <laughs> some, of some leaders in Europe and, and the rising concerns that are leading to protests in the street. Like there's a lot of uncertainty. It definitely makes one have to be more nimble, but I, I actually think it also makes the CapEx decisions to solve some of the supply side challenges even more difficult because of all these uncertainties. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building Smarter Markets be the antidote? Welcome back to our final episode of Winter is Coming on Smarter Markets. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at ABEX Technologies. Our guest today is Greg Chernow, Managing Director and Portfolio Manager for Commodities and Real Assets at PIMCO. We'll be discussing the European energy crisis, commodity markets, inflation, and what it all means for investors. Hello, Greg. Welcome to Smarter Markets. It's really great to talk with you today. For our listeners, when I first got started in commodities at Goldman, it was by sitting next to Greg on the 42nd floor of One New York Plaza, and you helped me to better understand these markets then and ever since. And there's a lot to try to understand in these markets right now. I read a piece you co-wrote at PIMCO recently on the OPEC Plus production cut announcement, where you pointed out their short-term and long-term justifications that they've given for that production cut, with a short-term justification being that it would preempt a slowdown in demand caused by the Fed tightening in response to inflation, and a longer-term justification that the world's underinvesting in oil and gas production And so supporting prices in the face of economic weaknesses serves everyone's long-term economic interest. And I thought that's a great way to kind of start off our discussion. And I wanted to start with the short-term issue. So how are you thinking about and weighing the actions of the Fed versus OPEC plus when sizing up your outlook for the energy markets this winter and into next year? And, you know, how does China fit into this also? Well, Dave, thank you for having me on. You know, anything I may have taught you pales in comparison to what you educated me when you joined. So uh, it was a wonderful working relationship and definitely, you know, two-way flow on, on information. With regards to your question, though, I think it's the Fed versus OPEC has really been a very challenging dynamic when you're when you're formulating a view because it is hard to look at the actions of the Fed and not say, well, that is going to lead to a slowdown in economic activity. You're already seeing it in, in some of the data that's regarding housing. And you would expect to see uh, the actions of higher central bank rates, not just in the US, but globally, you know, having a negative impact on real spending capability ultimately over time. Ironically, though, higher rates also increases the cost of capital to the energy space, which also then reduces potential investment. So there is a, a bullish aspect to the Fed policy that will have a more impactful over a longer term horizon than a short term because investors now have more places to put their money where they're actually earning some risk adjusted return again after many years of, of, of interest rates being so close to zero, which was you know made facilitated more money going in more places that and, and now is working the other direction. I think that kind of points to one of the challenges we're facing right now is that this cycle that we've been in higher commodity prices hasn't really been a demand side cycle. If you look at the last super cycle, the emerging market growth rate, particularly centered in China, 
really strained global supplies, you know, demand for many of these commodities aren't much different than where they were from 2019. And if anything, you know, they're not on the trend where they would have been, but we're seeing extreme tightness and, and very strong markets in part because of the constraints on the on the supply side. So if the Fed is going to really move rates much higher and that reduces capital availability further to up, upstream investment and, and investment in power sector and so forth, it could actually end up having a positive long-term impact. Now, OPEC's action, I think you've characterized what I said pretty accurately. I think that they had some concerns about short-term demand. And also there is definitely an interest to support prices long-term if you do, from, from a consumer standpoint, if you do believe we need to get that CapEx invested that we have been shy to do up to now. But I don't think that's the only reason. I think another part of their, their, their view is that if you think about driving your car and you have your pedal all the way down to the metal, you're going to start getting some vibrations. And if you're OPEC and you're producing at basically your near max capacity, like if you look at Saudi, they were producing 11 million barrels per day recently. They've never sustained that for two consecutive months. Sure, their surge capacity is still higher, but we haven't really proven that they've had sustainable capacity meaningfully higher. So seeing a reduction in output from OPEC is also probably a lot to do with like creating some flexibility in the system and, and reducing that vibration. Now, the one other piece that has happened since then is also some guideposts from SPR, which in many respects has the same sort of guidelines as what you were saying that OPEC Plus was trying to do, which is creating price stability, which over the long term is arguably going to facilitate more investment. If the SPR now can commit to forward buying oil around $70 and OPEC is willing to adjust their own output, at least for right now, like policies have changed a lot in OPEC, as you know, over the last 20 some odd years, there's it's what the response function today is not necessarily what the response function will be tomorrow. But as of right now, SPR, as well as you know, OPEC are working to kind of put a floor under where back-end oil prices are probably going to be. So in our mind, that leads us to having a constructive view on oil over the next six or 12 months, or certainly that the market is discounting a lot of demand weakness that could come potentially from the Fed tightening, particularly if the Fed tightening leads to lower capex. Now, your question on China, what's remarkable about these commodity markets, and I, I made reference to it before, in the last cycle up in commodities was very much led by China. And if you go back almost two years ago at PIMCO, we had a, in our secular forum, we were talking about how it used to be that if the US sneezes, the world caught a cold. And we were almost talking, we were talking more like two or three years ago about how the response function of global growth to changes in China growth is becoming like a three month lag. And it all of a sudden is not just the US, it's now China's impulse function. And that was even more true for commodities, given their large share of not only growth, but also their large share of absolute demand now, given how much they've grown over the last 15, 20 years. So we've actually had incredibly tight commodity markets across the whole chain. Almost all commodities are, are in a state of backwardation, which is usually consistent with low inventories and, and, tight, and tight fundamentals where people are willing to pay a premium for prompt delivery. And you managed to have this with China being a negative impulse. So when I look out to next year, I would love to know what exactly China is going to grow. Like we have our view that they're still going to grow at a slower rate than they have been and, and probably decelerating. But, you know, if they're growing and they start changing their COVID policies, that could be a real positive catalyst. But up until, you know, they make that decision, they're, they're a headwind to commodities. And, and I think that's a challenge for prices. And if, if not, if we hadn't had that, I, I don't know where prices would have been, to be honest. It would have been a lot higher and a lot more painful. Yeah, it's such a great point. You know, when you think about where would we be if China, you know, was not locking down so much of its economy over this period, 
and there was some real demand in this market because the supply side is so tight. And I wanted to ask you a bit, you know, you, you brought up that point of we now have these markets being managed by policymakers from so many different directions. You've got the OPEC plus trying to, you know, keep prices elevated and arguably stable. You've got the US using the SPR to try to keep prices low, but then maybe agreeing that they can't be too low. You've got the Fed trying to tame inflation. You've got the Chinese, you know, how are you? There's just seems like there's so much more policy choices and credibility of policymakers that you must have to think about today relative to, you know, years ago. Dave, feel I that way? <laughs> for sure. I mean, we had the Twitter wars also for four years before and we've had COVID. <laughs> so there's been a lot of policy shifts and challenges. I feel like since the start of COVID, it's, it's kind of, I like to always remark to people, you know, at one point when you and I were working together, we, we, you know, we were trying to get supply and demand down to like a couple hundred thousand barrels a day. Now our uncertainty of like all the inputs could be half a million to a million barrels a day easily. You know, like China demand, if they just use to reaccelerate, like that could be 500,000 barrels per day, more demand next year. The, the uncertainty bands are certainly wide. And I think that's part of what is also contributing to a lot of the constructive nature of the market because it really challenges CapEx. You know, if, you, if you're sitting there looking at this environment and you're looking at policy uncertainty, looking at demand uncertainty, you know, and the policy being China's COVID as well as uh, fiscal policy, which, in, which is a really big deal in Europe right now, and is having a big outsized impact on the market and certainly the political future of, <laughs> some, of some leaders in Europe and, and the rising concerns that are leading uh, to protests in the street. Like, there's a lot of uncertainty. It definitely makes one have to be more nimble, but I, I actually think it also makes the CapEx decisions to solve some of the supply side challenges even more difficult because of all these uncertainties. Yeah, and I definitely want to dig into that point with you. But before we get there, there, think about in this series, we've been talking about the coming winter with a lot of it being focused on Europe. And it's been interesting in that the US um, has been a little bit sheltered so far. You know, gasoline prices have come down and, you know, in a typical tight energy market in the US, we focus on gasoline. But with so much LNG going into Europe at this point, you're starting to see, you know, natural gas shortages in Southeast Asia due to LNG being diverted. And now you've got the concerns around the U.S. Northeast getting enough heating fuels this winter because, you know, due to lack of pipelines, a lot of the Northeast is, is an LNG importer as well and will be competing with Europe for those cargoes. I've already seen diesel prices are very high, which means high home heating oil prices in the Northeast as well. And so I was curious, I mean, I'm sure that'll get U.S. policymakers engaged uh, with high heating prices in the U.S. with winter. But how are you thinking about some of the spillovers from the European energy markets into these broader energy markets and kind of those ripple effects across commodities right now? Well, if I can also widen that and say, what is the ripple effects across the economies and the politics? Because yeah. it's, it's, it's the epicenter has been Europe, but the echo has, has, has been global. And, and the way you see it is, frankly, in the in the real wage contraction that you're seeing, that it that is very very sharp in Europe in particular, but elsewhere. It's that the, the European energy crisis has many impacts on other commodities, and and as for example, high natural gas prices are leading to higher coal prices, higher power prices which has the implications for creating higher coal prices elsewhere as well, which has the feed through to higher power prices. It has a substitution effect 
into oil. Now, I'm a little less alarmist than some others on the outlook for winter in Europe. Um, I think there's been a bit of a migration to that view recently because you've seen cash prices in Europe trading down from a high of 350 euros a megawatt hour. I think this weekend traded 50 or 60. I mean, that's a pretty big change. Now, the forward curves are still pricing a big premium. I think the challenge that we all have is figuring out what the demand response functions are when you've never seen prices in this neighborhood. And if you look in the past, you've seen price spikes and you kind of get a sense of how the demand responded on a short-term basis. But in almost all those cases, the forward curve was largely unmoved. It was viewed as a transient effect. And today it is the full forward curve is, is, at, a, is at a huge premium to what anything would have been expected historically. So uh, the reason why I've been a little bit less alarmist is that we have so much excess consumption in our energy systems. And there's a lot of actions people can do to save. I think part of one of the ironic things we've seen this year is how weak gasoline demand may have been in the United States. It's been much better in Europe, but it's been it's been weakish in the United States. I think part of that has to do with like, well, when your real wages are contracting, you start looking at ways of saving energy. Now, if you're a European energy consumer, I mean, you can not heat your whole home. You can, you know, Maybe move back in with your parents. You can work from the office more and let the let your firms pay your heating bills. Like there's there's a lot of actions that like awareness can actually lead to a material change. And like and you know that changing your thermostats by one or two degrees has a huge implication for energy consumption as well as you know curtailing peak power demand has a, a material impact on thermal generation because thermal is your marginal generation. So. I think what's going to happen in Europe, and if I'm right, which I'm really hoping I am, because it'll have meaningful implications on the fiscal stress in Europe and their ability to manage through their needed uh, subsidies that they're planning, or the planned subsidies, whether or not you can say that that's a good idea and if it's needed. But you know, as Europe consumers go, I think a lot is going to go in the global market. You know, if we end up getting the 15% consumption out of the consumers, that will be a meaningfully lowered tax on industrial output potentially. They'll have a meaningfully lower energy prices that you could potentially expect in Europe and in Asia and elsewhere who are big energy importers who are competing with Europe. So it's sad to say, but as Europe goes, we may end up go the energy markets. Now, oil could have its own independent issues because of Russian sanctions that are upcoming and, and OPEC and their decisions. And you know, there's a variety of things that can make that market different. But certainly when it comes to gas and coal, I mean, it's Europe can really control and hold a lot of lot of the outcomes because we've seen weaknesses in other places as you referenced from the high prices that are causing real strains for Asian importers in some of the lower income countries. So it's a real, you know, if Europe can figure out how to con- how to contain its own demand, you know, that will be very helpful in relieving some of the pressure elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like near term it's a demand side management issue and hopefully there'll be less painful ways of handling it uh, relative to what could potentially be more painful ways. But I wanted to get back to you to that longer term issue that, you know, over the long term, it's really about investment, right? And it's about getting investment in oil and gas production, other forms of energy production. And I was curious, you know, from your seat, how big a problem do you see in terms of underinvestment? And how have you experienced like the reluctance to invest in the space as a portfolio manager where, you know, you're managing the portfolios for commodities and real assets at PIMCO? You know, we spend a lot of time with the corporates trying to understand their decision functions, trying to get a handle of what dollars are going back in. And the reality is, is, you know, they at one point were spending 120% of free cash flow and are now spending 40 or 50%. You look at the changes in oil production 
relative to what you would have expected at similar prices. And you look at changes in, in investment in terms of rigs. I mean, it's meaningfully lower. And what I think is a very interesting stat, if you look at the International Energy Agency's investment outlook that was published a few months ago, you know, they were commenting also that 50% of your increase in global energy expenditures this year is all cost. So when you look at an inflation related, so when you look at companies, they really are, it's amazing how often I talk to them and they're really more concerned about their cost and cost management because of how investors view and treat their equities when they increase capex and have higher costs associated with it. It's very negative. So when you look at the oil and gas side, we're investing about 15% below where we were in 2018 and 19, despite prices about 30% higher. On a real basis, that's nominal. On a real basis, it's like 25% below. I mean, companies are just being more disciplined. Now, I think it's being a function of a few things. One, investors are demanding it after a very long period of subpar returns, and they want to be paid for their risk that they're taking. The second part is, is now think about anything long-term CapEx related. You don't just have the demand uncertainty associated with the energy transition. You have liabilities, you know, you know that the environmental policies are going to change. What is your carbon exposure? What is your remediation exposure? As you start expanding time, the uncertainty bounds around these policies and the demand outlook and so forth just get wider and wider and wider. And I think that's very challenging for companies to justify and operate in that environment. And that's why you see a lot of investments more likely to be green lighted and uh, renewable diesel, which with LCFS markets down here, I mean, it's got to be really challenged, but at least they can make a justification that in the long term, it's aligned where where the puck may be going. Problem is, it's just a long skate between now and then in the energy markets. And it's not just true in oil and gas upstream, it's also true in power. And if the, the scary thing is, is that while in the long term, more growth in renewables, more growth in storage, for renewable, you know, associated renewables are the greatest going to lead to lower prices in our mind. They're broadly deflationary, as we saw for a long time. The problem is we've done such damage to the baseload generation that we've added intermittent sources that aren't able to meet the full spectrum of our needs. So I think you're going to end up in a situation where the next three to five years, you're going to have higher and more volatile energy prices because the CapEx decisions that have been made before and, and the challenges of making incremental capex to improve your baseload capacity if it's thermal related or even nuclear in many places even though nuclear is having a bit of a renaissance it's still it's definitely a, a two-track system where some are going in the opposite direction it's just going to be very challenged to meet the energy needs it, certainly if the economy begins to to grow again you know in a meaningful way yeah it seems like such an intractable issue like I, i've heard from a number of guests now this point of you know a lot of the infrastructure that needs to get built is something that you know you'd want it to have a 20 30 year lifespan and people look at it i think it was susan sackmar talking about lng said you know when people are thinking about an lng investment it's like oh fine that's great we need lng now but what if in 10 years we're not allowed to use gas anymore can this be converted for hydrogen and you know what you were saying made me think of that a little bit too. Of you know, with uh, the clean diesel, of you know, okay, can you can you take this investment and convert it into something in five years or ten years that's going to continue to generate returns? And that seems like a very hard plan, a high bar for uh, corporate to try to meet in making an investment. Is this pretty widespread? Yeah, I think the policy uncertainty is what you're referencing there. And the fact that if you look at clean diesel, for example, I mean, it relies on policy incentives. And if you look at some of the other investments, it's really very policy. And if the policy is going to change with different political winds 
it does make the challenges harder. And, and certainly consumers and governments are willing to look at the next three and five years and make that decision. But as you reference, it's harder to make that decision over a 20 year, 30 year period. Now we're definitely moving into a period with higher LNG FID is going to be made, right? Even if it's uh, the lesser of all the evils, it's one that markets are paying for. So I think you're going to see more LNG projects. But when you start looking at some of the other projects that would otherwise go, yeah, I think you can easily say that some of the challenges are, are real. Now, my, my real concern about LNG is that everyone might want to build an LNG import terminal and, and lots of builders in the U.S. want to be LNG, LNG export terminals. We have to accompany that with upstream. Now, if you're in East Africa, they are paired. And there's some other areas of the world where they're going to be paired like in gutter. But in places like the U.S., I mean, we have to be able to invest to keep up with the LNG export capacity that could come down the line. And, you know, permitting is a big portion of the challenges in doing so. Yeah, we don't want to start paying European prices for natural gas in the U.S. if we build all the export terminals, but not the upstream production unless facilities. Unless they're both at six, then you're <laughs> Then it's okay. <laughs> but I, I imagine that's not your forecast. <laughs> no, that's not. But I, I definitely, you would, you would expect that over time, you're going to see compression in the ARBs because the incentives are there. Just like dollars will flow through the higher mar highest margin. That's not a grand philosophical statement of like insight. I'm more just saying like investors go where returns are, LNG ARBs are high. We should invest to rectify that. Right, right. Well, I want to follow the investment dollars upstream with you for a moment in that, you know, if you look, U.S. inflation's the highest it's been in 40 years. Uh, the strength of the dollar against other currencies means you know, commodity prices are much more painful outside the U.S. The conventional 60-40 equity bond portfolio, I think, just had its worst year in a century. So I'm curious, how are investors, you know, who ultimately will finance projects through, you know, investments in companies and more directly in commodities, are investors, you know, responding to the situation? And is the attitude towards investments in commodities and real assets changing at this point? Yes, but it's fairly nuanced. So I think if you look at the 60-40 portfolio, there's a period of time which is has a large historical sample where the correlations aren't negative between fixed income and equities. And usually in that environment tends to be associated with inflationary environments. And you've seen that in the past year where inflation has really picked up its head, you know, growth rates are coming down, nominal rates are going up, and it creates a real problematic time for investors. So owning inflation assets are more important than maybe other periods where growth is the dominant factor. When inflation is dominant, you know, inflation-related assets are, are in higher demand for portfolio diversification. So there's definitely a lot of clients who are interested in hedging their inflation risk to their portfolio. The thing is, is that there are a lot of scars, particularly in the United States, from long periods of poor commodity returns and, and low inflation, where it wasn't the best use of the dollar. Now, the problem is, is it's when we have the regime shifts that like you had to have had the investment. And while there's definitely some regret from a lot of the U.S. investor base who weren't really actively engaged, like they may have been 10 or 15 years ago. I think the challenges that many are debating now is like, can you buy commodities today if the forward economic outlook is lower? 
So there's there's a tug of war between those who can get over that hump and view it from a portfolio diversification standpoint versus those who are like, we'll say, well, in a bad economic outlook, do I want to own commodities? And you know, they're at a higher nominal price than they've been. And as a result, like I should I should not be interested. So there's it's a two-way conversation. And the other part of that is that for those who were invested, because your 60-40 went down so much and commodities are up, if you had a 3% allocation now, you might be at 45 or 5% today. So just you know, portfolio rebalancing, take the cash from here to finance other ills in your portfolio. But the interesting part, and this is unexpected to me, to be honest, is that the global investor, particularly in Asia, Latin America, places that historically have had a high leverage to EM growth, and as a result, would have felt more insulated in an inflationary cycle, a commodity cycle than they have been this time, never had that EM virtual demand growth and never had the EM growth story. Kind of what I mentioned before about China, you never had the growth, but you still got the commodity you know, inflation because of the supply exchange. All of a sudden, they're finding themselves very subject to changes in inflation globally, changes in the US Fed policy, and have found themselves on the tail end of the inflation cycle and have become more and more interested in hedging their inflation. So while U.S., what our perception is, the U.S. investors are very much split and there's some who are reducing for various reasons or some who have just missed it and they're now concerned because of of demand, the global investor has been much more interested than they have been in past cycles, in part because of the nature of this, you know, rise in prices have been much more in the supply rather than the virtuous economic boom EM-led cycle that we had before. So Everyone is having a different experience right now in terms of how, or rather, everyone's having a shared experience and having drawing <laughs> different conclusions on how to manage going forward. There's no, no rock you can hide under that's big enough. You know? Yeah. No, it's great because it is. You, know, like you look at it and say, okay, we've got an energy crisis, high inflation, central banks tightening, equity markets falling, bond markets not diversifying, which often seems like that classic environment for commodities. But, you know, as you said, there's a long history of investors who, that did not go well for them. And it takes time to to change that attitude and uh, look back at the diversification. I'm curious from your perspective, though, like, where do you see as some of the bigger investment opportunities in commodities and real assets over the medium term? You know, so I think the probably the, the part of the commodity complex where we think has the best medium term outlook is the oil space, in part because of the real limitations that we think are happening on the growth and production side. When I look at other commodities such as agriculture, while the environment is very tight right now, and we've had two years of some fairly unfavorable weather conditions, ultimately every year, this volatility on the supply side is meaningfully higher than the volatility on the demand side. So if you have good growing conditions, you can start seeing a rebuilding of stocks. So it's hard to, harder to have like a strong view that these prices are sustainable in agriculture without knowing the weather. Now, we do know that there's been higher inflationary pressures that will likely limit the ability to bring in additional marginal acreage. We've seen some, what we believe is some plateauing or, or definite slowing of the ability of places like Brazil to bring in additional acreage. So we do think that there is inflationary potential in the ag space, but I would describe it more as we have a more, much like power and gas, like we have a much more brittle system. So as if you do believe that the climate is becoming less stable, more volatile, potentially ags are going to have a higher likelihood to see price spikes than you would have seen maybe 10 or 15 years ago, if you think that this is like a real structural change. And we had a speaker in from NASA who was talking to us about this. And 
I think the way you conclude from that is you expect higher average prices, but definitely higher vol than you would have expected before. So our starting point on the ags market still in the near term is, is on a constructive side because where inventories are and where the harvest has been, but at least the worst has been avoided in the U.S. for corn and soy, but it still was not a great year. Um, and then when I look at metals, I think a lot of it has to do with as China goes, the metals markets will go. We are seeing some reductions in CapEx in the metal side as prices have come down and amazing. They're doing it at, at higher price levels than you would may have expected in the past, but that's again related to inflationary pressures. But China still is the biggest mover. So yes, the energy transition has positives for the metal space, but it's hard to offset the size and scale of China growth to the, and their implications for that to the metals markets. Does that answer your question or? Oh yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like the oil sector is the one that you're, you're, you're most favorable on in the medium term and probably on the upstream. Yes. And I think that also is going to ultimately drive a lot of what happens in other commodities. Yeah. Like for example, if oil halves and the investment, the cost of investing in other upstream, you know, production, whether it be in metals or agriculture becomes more, less challenging, um, you know, the high fertilizer prices and ammonia prices as a result of what's happening in Europe, like if that reverses, that certainly reduces some of the pressures in the system. But I do think oil is, is the one that has the greatest constraints. Um, certainly natural gas has is, is been very tight, but the ability of Russia to shock Europe now has gone, you know, there were 400 million cubic meters a day and, 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 and 40%, they're now 40 into Northwest Europe. I mean, there's always zero and, and that wouldn't be easy adjustment, but like in the oil market, their built, their potential drop in exports alone can dramatically keep, you know, can keep this market really tight for a very long time. So we think oil holds a better outlook right now. Yeah. And you gave us a great tour of, you know, kind of the the current commodity landscape. But I wanted to ask you, because our next podcast series um, is going to be on financing the energy transition. And of course, the energy transition, as it's conceptualized, requires moving, you know, a pretty big change in the commodities landscape. You know, we're going to go into pricing carbon, decreased use of fossil fuels, increased use of metals and minerals like copper, nickel, lithium, cobalt for electric vehicles and renew renewable power generation. You know, when we talk about commodity markets, I don't know whether it's in five years or 10 years or longer, it might be a different set of markets that we're, we're focused on. And I'm curious, how are you thinking about that from an investing standpoint? Like, investing in traditional commodity sectors versus the commodity sectors that, you know, the world's increasingly committed to transitioning toward. And, you know, is that space even investable at this point? So I, I think the, we're not going to see a, a phase out of retirement of trading and investing opportunities in traditional energy because we have yet to prove that the world can move off of any. We've seen lower shares over time for different commodities, but we our wood consumption and you know coal and mm -hmm. and you name it, like we've just largely been by we just we're always at adding because of the global energy market. So I think it's our expectation in five years is that you know we are our investment space is still going to be very similar to today with additional opportunities. Carbon, for example, you mentioned, I think is an area of growing interest. Now talk about a market that has a big policy driven views, right? You know, Europe going for 50 or 55 had a meaningful impact on the forward supply of European emissions allowances and, and US California policy is another market that is potentially going to change given uh, the new carbon neutrality goal by, by 2045 that was just brought into law. But 
you know, these markets are going to be very interesting because one of the ways in which the globe is going to try to make that transition is through bringing in carbon prices. And carbon is like letting the market try to solve is is hopefully the way forward. But some places will be more command and control. Some places will be carbon taxes and just assume that they know the right place to get the outcome they want. But, you know, it's definitely going to be an area where you'll have greater opportunities for investing. Now, I think more broad across asset classes, I think it argues for a very flexible approach because you are going to have periods of time where different areas are going to have higher rates of return. And just being in any one sector, just energy transition and not investing in the old line energy markets could leave pretty big gaps in in one's portfolio, particularly if you're really thinking about this area as part of your inflation hedging basket. So like it's not just a return center, but it's a return and inflation then you kind of need to have what drives inflation. And right now, oil is still, and food and the emerging markets and elsewhere are still the biggest contributors to the volatility inflation. Now, core inflation has really had its own year and a half right now where volatility there has certainly picked up. But if you want to hedge and have your view about that uh, as inflation related, you can't ignore the old line commodities. And in terms of being investable, there's definitely... The capital markets are ignoring some of the challenges very recently with the higher rates and reduction ability for the market to IPO and, and new technology you know, technology sectors, kind of the epicenter of some of those challenges. It's going to continue to grow. And there's opportunities in companies that are going to be able to take advantage of some of, some of the growth industries. The challenge that I have, and, and Dave, you and I have seen this over and over again, like if I want to invest in a company that's going to build batteries, for example, for the grid, they're all going to target the same hour or two or three a day. So you always have to be very careful with like how much you expect current margins to sustain. That's just like, I'm throwing that out there. Is like, I mean, I can't, you, you can't tell you how many times you're like, oh, look at the rate of return you can get from hours 16 and 17, which used to be hours 3, 13, 14, 15, you know, and, and, and everyone's going to invest into that. And next thing you know, that isn't the hour. And all of a sudden it's some other hour. So you have to be pretty careful. So I think knowing the history of the challenges in investing in solar globally, investing in wind, investing in some of these technologies is going to be really important for investors to take those lessons and learn them because you don't want to put money behind an investment theme and you're relying on, on something that is very challenging. Kind of like I made a comment before about renewable diesel. Look at the LCFS market. Like We looked at a bunch of projects two years ago. And it's funny, we got called to, to sell puts to hedgers because they all needed to have 125 or 120 to generate a good return for their investment. And we're trading 65 or 17 now. I mean, it's 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 challenging because the growth in projects that we're looking at, oh, we're at 200. This is great. Commodity markets are really volatile. So I really suggest having a very broad approach and having a very flexible approach because you have to appreciate just how volatile they are. And with that volatility in mind, I was curious, you know, from your perspective, what would be the most helpful in helping us finance the transition into some of these newer forms of energy? Is it better risk management? Is it better education? What, what do you see from your end? I think policy certainty and clarity would all be very helpful, but that I'm optimistic we get there. If you look at Europe, if you look at the United States, the Western world is really struggling with that. China probably has like a slightly greater ease in imposing policy certainty. But even there, we've seen changes in the way in which they've approached their heavy emitting industries. So I think the, the big challenge is to deal with that. I think the other challenge is to do with a lot of the efforts in deglobalization 
and some of the challenges that a lot of countries don't want to rely on energy or mineral suppliers from other countries and view it as a zero-sum game. I think that also threatens to reduce the available amount of money that will flow to the upstream. Uh, you know, a, a supply of energy. When I say upstream, I'm not just meaning oil and gas in that standpoint. So I think the energy transition is going to require a massive amount of capital. And some of these hurdles are just a real challenge. At, at the very least, one would say we can control policy a little bit better than we have and put some good policy in place. And, and if you look at the political outcomes you're seeing in Europe with people in the streets and the, and the pressure and rising populism, like you can see the imperative of doing so. I'm just afraid that these events cause bad outcomes as a short-term political imperative, which again re- reduces the incentive and ability to invest. The other thing also is hedging is really hard as you go into less liquid commodities and a lot of the banks face different tiering on their capital. So if you trade something that's highly illiquid or something really long dated, they have to have higher capital charges and greater reserves against it, which is probably good for the overall financial stability of the system, but also makes hedging very challenging. So there's a bit of a dearth of capital out there dedicated to helping facilitate that. I think that's an opportunity for investors, but it's definitely an obstacle to growth of that CapEx. Thanks again to Greg Chernow, Managing Director and Portfolio Manager for Commodities and Real Assets at PIMCO. We hope you enjoyed the episode. This concludes our series, Winter is Coming, on Smarter Markets. Next week, we begin our new series, Financing the Energy Transition, in which we'll talk with the investors, financiers, and project developers who are working to finance the energy transition and to use carbon financing to fund carbon reduction projects. We'll be discussing the current state of the energy transition, ESG, and carbon finance, and what is needed to invest in the energy transition and carbon reduction at scale. We hope you'll join us. This episode was brought to you in part by ABAX Exchange. Market participants need the confidence and ability to secure funding for resource development, production, processing, refining, and transportation of commodities across the globe with markets for LNG, battery metals, and emissions offsets at the core of the transition to sustainability, ABAX Exchange is building solutions to manage risk in these rapidly changing global markets. Facilitating futures and options contracts designed to offer market participants clear price signals and hedging capabilities in those markets essential to our sustainable energy transition. ABAX Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks better technology, and better tools for risk management. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by ABAX. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, ABEX Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next week.